Good morning again, as we come to God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, For me, there is a question that uh, I often dread hearing, and the question is, what seems to be the problem? And I dread it when that question is asked of me by the guys at the car shop. I know nothing about cars. Nothing. So what I often do when I have a car problem is I often ask David DeLauder. And if I have to go to the garage, I generally just memorize a few sentences that he's told me. And I repeat that to the car shop and act like I know what I'm doing so that they hopefully won't take advantage of me. So if you ever hear me talking about a transmission or something shaking and I'm doing it with confidence, don't ask me a lot of questions. I really am just faking it completely. I hope you don't work at a car shop. My problem when it comes to my own car is that I often don't even know what the problem is. What if that's not just with cars? What if uh, in life we actually don't know what our greatest problem is? That's the assumption of the entire Bible, that we're so bad off that we're not even capable of diagnosing our greatest problem. And so we're also not capable of providing the solution to our problem. So strangely, in the gospel, we find out that we're much worse off than we thought we were. That the problem goes much deeper than we thought. That we don't just need a small repair. We need to be made wholly new altogether. Turn to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, first book of the Bible. Chapter number is the big number. Genesis 32, and this morning we come to a text where after 20 years, our man Jacob has now left Laban, and he's going to meet his long-lost and estranged brother, Esau. Jacob knows he has a problem, and it's this broken relationship. What Jacob does not know is that more than that, he needs to be broken. But God knows that. God knows that. So here's the the big idea I want you to get as we work through this passage this morning. God not only defines your greatest problem, God not only defines your greatest problem, but God also provides the only solution. God not only defines your greatest problem, but God also provides the only solution. That's true for Jacob, and that's true for you and me. So we're going to work through this, chapter 32 and 33, through three points this morning. Three points. Number one, we're going to begin now. First of three. Preparation and prayer. Preparation and prayer. So look at chapter 32, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, 
Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Jacob has left Laban, and now he's returning to the land that God has promised. And immediately, the angels of God met Jacob. We are definitely not told as much as we'd like to know about that. We do know that angels met Jacob when he left the land for Paddan Haram. Jacob saw that place, and he called it God's place. So, Angels met him when he left. And notice the pattern. Angels are meeting him when he returns. It evokes this image of angels guarding the border of the land. It evokes the image of Eden. And this term, Mahanaim, means two camps. So probably indicating God's camp and Jacob's camp, the unseen realm and the seen realm. Now, if you're like me, you're fascinated in one sense by angels. We know that they are from Hebrews, ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. 
in angels, we see yet again, God provides more than we can fathom for our salvation, what we're seeing and what we don't see. But angels are nothing compared to Christ. Angels serve the purposes of God's majestic son. They were a gift to Jacob, but God's promised protection and presence was even greater. Angels only serve to mediate that. Why does Jacob need protection? Well, after all these years, things aren't resolved with Esau. Jacob was sent away because of their conflict. And rather than take this wait and see approach, Jacob very entrepreneurially proactively goes after Esau to try to appease this situation by appeasing him. That's what this entire section is about. Jacob is preparing for his own preservation. That's what he does in verses 3 to 8. And then he prays that powerful prayer in 9 to 12. And then he sends that generous present in verses 13 through 21. That quickly mentioned encounter with the angels teaches us that the vertical goes before the horizontal. What happens here? Notice that Jacob is leaving nothing to chance. He sent messengers in verse 3. He tells them exactly what to say. Esau is to be addressed as my Lord. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 18. Jacob is to be referred to as your servant. Verse 4, verse 18, verse 20. And what's the irony if we remember this story? God declared before the twins were born, the older shall serve the younger. And then Isaac promised Jacob he would be Lord over his brothers. Jacob returns from Laban's land a humbled man. And he also returns wealthy. His messengers, verse 5, are to ensure Esau knows that Jacob has oxen and donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. And then we, we see that present that he's preparing for Esau Uh, There in verses 13 through 15. I learned this week that each goat of the 200 female goats would have been worth the equivalent of about 740 dirhams each. Now multiply that by 200 and it comes to about 148,000 dirhams. And that's just the female goats. That's not everything else included in this present. Jacob is a rich man, and he can spare this in order to appease Esau's wrath. Now, what happened when those messengers returned from their first meeting with Esau? The report is so brief. Verse 6, they met Esau, he's coming, and he has 400 men. Really? That's all they said? Back in Genesis 14, we learned that Abraham had 318 men when he defeated the five kings that were in that valley to rescue Lot. Uh, with this report, we understand, well why, we understand well why Jacob in verse 7 was greatly afraid and distressed. In that place that meant two camps, he divided his family into two camps. 
He has every reason to believe there is a military assault coming for him. And he wants to preserve at least one of the camps of his family. Jacob has changed, though. The center of this preparation to meet Esau is this prayer that he prays to the God of his father Abraham and Isaac in verse 9. And here, you may not have noticed this, but for the very first time, Jacob uses the name Yahweh, translated Lord. Jacob knows his God. And in verse 10, he knows that he's not worthy of the least of the steadfast love and faithfulness that Yahweh, the Lord, has shown his servant. His humility is striking. Jacob sees that everything he has is not a result of his cleverness, his scheming, his natural power or ability. It's all divine gift. Look at what he says in verse 10. He left with only my staff. He's returned having become two camps. It's remarkable. Jacob looks at his life and he can see that his life is filled with the undeserved initiative of God. It was the Lord who spoke in verse 9, telling him, return to your country and kindred. And while the Lord actually promised him his presence as the God of Bethel in chapter 31, Jacob rightly interprets that as God's promise to do him good. Do you see how much good God has done to Jacob? Jacob does. Apart from his own deserving, the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac is now Jacob's God. God has not let go of him. It's God's undeserved kindness, his goodness to Jacob that has taken him from a man with a staff to a man who has a family that is the foundation of a nation. Friends, this is not about Jacob's prosperity. This is about God's goodness to keep his undeserved promise to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham, a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And what is the foundation of Jacob's prayer? It is that God is good. Goodness is God's essence. God only does good in salvation and in judgment. Grace is the outworking of God's goodness. Wrath upholds and vindicates who God is as good because God who is good opposes evil. God promised Jacob his good presence. Does that mean his life was at without hardship or trial or injustice? No. But Jacob sees clearly through all of that, God, his God, is good. Now what about you? In your own heart, do you see God as good or stingy? A God who loves or is out to get you. I think a large part of that depends on how you see yourself. Can you say with Jacob and mean it, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness 
Or is there something in you that believes, I deserve that? He owes me. It's who Jacob understands that he is as undeserving that fuels this prayer to God. Now, if you understand you don't deserve even the least of God's faithfulness, that is a gift of God. Ask God to change you from believing he owes you to seeing that what you already have is a gift. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, the only reason you are poor spiritually is because you do not know your riches that are yours in Christ. Just as John prayed earlier, have you started to take your salvation for granted? That it's become old hat to you. That can be a temptation. Ask the Lord to give you a deeper understanding of who you truly are apart from Christ. And so that you might understand and know the spiritual riches that are yours now in him. It's because God's goodness is deeper than he can fathom. Jacob presses into the goodness of God in verse 11 when he asked the Lord to deliver him from Esau. That's the big ask. Deliver me from Esau. Why? Jacob says, I fear him. How honest. Are you honest with the Lord when you pray? Tell him what you fear without any pretense. God graciously includes prayers like this in Scripture to encourage us to pray honestly to the Lord. Jacob is afraid. But I love this gutsy prayer in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and multiply your offspring. It's the second time in these few verses, back in verse 9 is the first, that in one prayer, Jacob prays based on what God has said. And notice both times, it's based on God's promise to do good. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to believe that God's word is true. You must also believe that what God has said is good. Always. Isn't that what Eve did not believe when she was tempted by the snake? God not only speaks, what he says is good. And we live in a world that demonstrates it does not believe that what he said is good. Always good. I fear him. But you said, I wonder what kind of honest, gutsy prayer you in your own life need to pray like that. Oh Lord, I am tempted by this. But you said, I have little faith or no faith. But you said, or maybe I am a sinner, but your son. Pray God's word to God. I want to tell you about Maxine Zoff. She was a precious, older saint in a church that I was previously a part of. I've never clearly forgotten her. And I tell you about her because you should have heard her pray in our church prayer meetings. She had this meek voice, but when Maxine prayed, she prayed down heaven with these scripture-saturated prayers. This is the way, brothers and sisters. 
Make use of God's word when you pray. Come pray with us tonight as we pray God's word together. In his word, God gives his children who do not know how to pray as we ought, even the words to use when we pray. The Psalms, the Apostle Paul, the book of Daniel, prayers are everywhere in scripture. It is a gift of God that this text does not go from verse 8 to verse 13. But at the very center of this preparation is his prayer. Jacob is not living below God-given privileges. Are you? Jacob is not living above seeing himself as unworthy of God. Do you live above the station and the place that God has put you? But also see that prayer does not lead Jacob to being passive. He acts. It's after he prays that he puts together this present for Esau. And he tells the servants exactly what to do. Your servant Jacob. Your servant Jacob is behind us. It's his Lord Esau that he's sending all of this to. What's behind all of this? Verse 20. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. It is preparation, isn't it? Being presented for someone preparing to atone the wrath of someone. It's very religious in the way that it's written. When he sees Esau's face, will Esau accept him? Will my presence presence be enough to appease his wrath? The, the word appease is literally cover his face. It's to wipe the anger from his face. Why? That Esau may receive him, which literally means he will lift up my face. So the question we have is when Esau and Jacob see each other, when they see each other face to face, what will happen? Jacob has prepared. He's prayed. When he sees Esau's face, will Jacob find favor? Let's go now to the second thing that we see in this text. Breaking and blessing. So we move from preparation and prayer to breaking and blessing. Verses 22 through 32. Look back down at your copy of the scriptures. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Peniel limping because of his hip, Therefore, this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, I wonder 
why Jacob, Jacob, sent his entire family, everything, across the Yabak River without him that night. We don't know. Was he anxious? We don't know. But remarkably, he's alone. He's completely unprotected when he unexpectedly meets this man who wrestles with him all night long. I loved wrestling when I was a kid. Epic wrestling matches. None of them even compare to what this night must have been like. This would have been such a fierce struggle. Uh, We know, we've seen in the text, Jacob was a strong man. He moved massive stones. We know that he contended with wild beasts. He was incredibly strong. And this man was not prevailing until he touched his hip and he put it out of joint. Now, it is at that point that you do realize this wrestling match could have ended much earlier. He simply needed to touch his hip and it was over. But there was a reason he had to wrestle all night. Verse 26, Jacob has his hip literally out of joint. He's still wrestling, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob knows enough about this man to know he's greater than him. Only the greater can bless the lesser. And so it's striking that in response to his request for a blessing, the man asked Jacob his name. Jacob was born a wrestler. He grabbed Esau's hill His name means deceiver, and now he must say his name out loud, Jacob. And then the man changes his name to Israel, for he strove with God and he prevailed. Jacob, who struggled, who wrestled in the womb with Esau, whose life has been marked by deception, Jacob has a new name. No longer deceiver, but one who has struggled with God and prevailed, but not through wrestling. He does not prevail by physical strength or power. He prevails in prayer, demanding this man bless him. He persevered. He refused, even when his hip was out of socket, to let go. What was it that Jacob asked of God? The beginning of this chapter, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. Here is Genesis telling us the truth of Romans. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. God is answering Jacob's prayer better than Jacob knew to ask. God knew what Jacob needed better than Jacob knew. Jacob was worried about seeing Esau's face. It's God's face that is of greatest importance. His greatest obstacle was not Esau. It was not horizontal. It's vertical with God. Before the broken relationship is healed, Jacob needed to be broken. His reconciliation and safe return to the land would not be by human wisdom, human power, but by God's. God in his goodness always does good, even when his goodness does not take the path we expect. When Jacob asked the man's name and he replies, why is it that you asked my name? One commentator makes the point that it was another way of saying, 
Jacob, don't you realize who I am? It's only after the man is gone, Jacob realizes he's been in the presence of God. It's why he names the place Peniel, which means face of God. Jacob saw God face to face and was delivered. Now, if you're like me, you're curious, was this God himself? I think this is most likely an angel representing God. One reason is because of Hosea 12. Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4, the prophet writes, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, speaking of Jacob, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. So God told Moses he could not see his face and live. The point here is that this encounter was overwhelming. He was in God's presence. The angel represented God. Jacob leaves with a limp, but he leaves with his life delivered. And so for generations, the people of God would observe a food, a dietary restriction. When they ate the thigh, I would not eat the sinew of the thigh because God touched Jacob there. Do you see what God is doing? He's orchestrating all of this, not just for Jacob. It's for Israel. From their own diet to the very place, God's people were to learn it's not through physical strength that Israel was created. Israel was created through weakness. Israel did not come about through physical power, but through spiritual. Not through physical struggle, but through prayer. To be delivered, Israel did not need to be made strong, but weak. How that must change the way we understand God's ways. Jacob was terrified of encountering Esau. And God teaches Jacob and us, we don't know what to be terrified of, as we ought. God is changing Jacob. He's teaching him. He's teaching the world whose face is the most fearful to encounter. Jacob feared one encounter with Esau's face, but the bigger problem for Jacob, for us, is that we live all of life before God's face. God redefines his biggest problem, and God alone provides the solution. The broken relationship is not the greatest problem. Jacob needed to be broken, and the Lord did it. So for Israel to prevail in his struggle, for Israel to go into the land of promise, Israel needed to be broken. The new name guarantees destiny. And God teaches his people this truth. Jacob, Israel, overcomes by holding on to God. Even in the midst of weakness, the enemy is not overcome by your human strength, but by weakness. Just think about God's people generations later. They had great enemies that caused them to fear. God teaches them only cling to God. Jacob becomes Israel physically weaker, spiritually stronger. With God, weakness is strength. We are desperate to cling to things that are powerful. We want so badly to be strong, but God saves in weakness. What kind of a salvation are you looking for? Something you can 
accomplish in your own strength a path, a fast that you can keep. The God who interrupts Jacob in this text is the God who incarnated himself in his son in the weakness of a baby. God's own son did not come into the world in human strength, but in weakness of human flesh, not to conquer, but to die. And we would expect our salvation would come through our own preparation, through our own presence, but God has prepared all of it. He is the one that's given the gift of his own son that we might, his son might satisfy his wrath and we might find favor with God. Friends, there's no amount of appeasement we can do for our own sin before God. But the true God who is better than we can fathom has done every bit of it. And remarkably, while Jesus was in the weakest position possible, not a broken limb, but his body broken on the cross dying, He was accomplishing salvation there. And God raised him. Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God that we might see God's face and live. God makes clear at the cross that our greatest problem is deeper than we can fathom. And he graciously provides the solution. Will you stay trying to come to God in your own strength in a struggle in which you will not prevail, or will you allow allow God to sweetly break you and repent and believe in Him? Ask God to break you, to bring you to the point of repentance that you might know the joy of His salvation, which is not on human strength, but weakness. We learn this clearly. With God, victory comes through defeat. Salvation through weakness. If you want to know more about that or if you're wrestling with that, I hope you'd talk to me or a friend that maybe you came with today. That night for Jacob was so unexpected. I I bet he thought he would die. And he prevails through the weakness of prayer. Doesn't prayer feel so weak? I mean, we can't even see what it's doing. Uh, If you're like me at times when you pray alone, your mind wonders. You wonder what's happening, if anything's being accomplished. And then there's just the battle each day to pray. And it feels inefficient because we can't see the results. There's there's other things that we need to do. And yet, do you see how prayer is highlighted in this account? Did you pray last week? I wonder what you prayed for. What did you struggle in prayer for? Was it all about you? And your immediate life? Did you not pray? You know, Ramadan has begun. Will you pray big prayers during this month for friends around us to know that righteousness is a gift accomplished through God's Son that we cannot boast of even a little? Friends, pray. Struggle in prayer. We would be Christians, we must believe, and so act as if God uses the weak things of the world, not the strong. We can't use the weapons of this world better than the world can, but we can use the weak things of God better than this world can. Make use of the privilege of prayer. Jacob was an ambitious man, but here by God's power, his ambition is in prayer. It's when he was broken that Israel prevailed. The angels 
met God before his preparation or met Jacob. God meets him before this attempt at reconciliation, vertical before the horizontal. He's now broken, but he's blessed. Israel emerges from a night of struggle, visibly weak, but now ready to meet the enemy that has been dreaded for so long. And with that, we, we go to the final point this morning, reconciliation and return. And this is all of chapter 33, reconciliation and return. Look back down at the scriptures. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and Sarah. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sarah, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. After he prevails with God in prayer, he now prevails over Esau. Notice the order of the family in verse 2. The servants are in front, then Leah and her children, then Rachel and Joseph. Joseph is the only child that is named. In the back are the most favored and protected. Now this is for another day, but the seeds of conflict with Joseph were from the earliest days in this family. And now with a limp, Jacob goes in front. And he humbly bows himself before his brother. Jacob goes in humility in seeking reconciliation. There's no violent struggle in that meeting. The narrator slows down and he tells us everything Esau does. He runs toward Jacob. He embraces him. He fell on his neck. He kissed him and they wept. 
We know a lot about the last 20 years in Jacob's life. We know nothing about Esau's. How did he go from the brother who was so wronged to the brother who weeps? We don't know. Jacob's whole family is is bowing down before Esau to find favor with him. And Esau says in verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have. And then there's this back and forth. Verse 10, if I found favor, accept this present. Jacob likened seeing his face with seeing the face of God. Jacob saw God's face before Esau's. Jacob's fear is gone. Years before, Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. But now he urges Esau to accept this blessing. He does not speak of what's happened before. He's very diplomatic. He speaks of this blessing. It seems that by calling Esau Lord, by submitting to him, he's trusting that the Lord can even raise him up, even in his humility before Esau. Notice that Jacob speaks of what he has. Notice how he speaks of it. Verse 5, the children whom God has graciously given. Verse 11, God has dealt graciously with me. So this grace of which Jacob speaks is absent from Esau's lips. Esau accepts the present, but he's on the outside of God's covenant blessing. He has no interest in the true blessing from God. Now, Esau thinks Jacob has come for a visit. Jacob's only come for reconciliation. There's this back and forth in verses 12 and 14. Esau wants Jacob to come with, to him with Edom, but Jacob declines diplomatically. You know the children? They're frail. The flocks, they're so slow. I'll just stay back. Esau may not trust Jacob either. Verse 15, let me leave some of the people who are with me with you. Jacob, very diplomatically, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Israel diplomatically keeps going away from Esau and Edom to the promised land. And here at this last point, Esau walks off the pages of Scripture. He's reconciled with Jacob, but he leaves Scripture a man content with the blessings of this world. He was not interested in God's covenant because he was not interested in God. Are you content only with the here and now, like Esau? A way to determine that is what you do with your money, how you spend it, if you give it. That will tell you whether you live by sight or by faith in this world. He departs from Jacob, but this is Esau's final departure from God, but not Jacob. He does not follow Esau. The point was their reconciliation, not that their lives would be intertwined. So Israel, inhabiting the land, demands that Israel be separate from people and places that do not know the God of Abraham and Isaac. Esau has gone to Edom, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Here is Israel in temporary booths before verse 18, coming to Canaan, which is the promised land. And what did he do with his wealth? Verse 19, he bought a piece of land there. And like Abraham, he built an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel, God, the God of Israel. By God's grace, by God's power, 
in Canaanite territory, the broken Jacob, now Israel, sets up a place of worship to the true God. Only God could bring this about in this way. Reconciliation with Esau and then return to the land. Now this mention of Shechem's father and the sons of Hamor means there is trouble ahead. But for now, Israel has made it to the promised land and the true worship of God is established. Jacob prepared for this high stakes meeting with Esau. He had no idea that his greatest battle would be a high stakes encounter with God. But God did. And God weakened his servant so that he would prevail. He's freshly broken. He is reconciled and separate from his enemies. And Israel has entered the land in circumstances only God could bring about. What did the Israel of the future need to learn? Entering the land is not by by your power, but God's. It's not by natural strength, but through weakness. Your deepest problem is not what you think it is. It's not the face of your enemy that you should ultimately fear. It is the face of God living in his presence before his face. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ assures our appeasement forever. The cross means we have favor with God. This week, choose the path of weakness. Struggle in prayer. And be thankful if you find yourself walking with a limp.